Good. Um, thank you all for coming, all of you and the four of you. Um, I want to start with a very basic question about directing, which is a, 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 an art more appreciated than understood, I would say, and uh, just a very basic question about directing, not necessarily Shakespeare, uh, but do you, is there one task that you see as the central job of, the, of a director of any production, any theatrical production? Um, Mark, why don't you start us off? No. <laughs> Good. No, David. I, <laughs> it could just be yes/no answers for this one, couldn't it? I think it's it's a it's an interesting question. The every play seems to, for me at any rate, call forth a whole other set of muscles, some of which I don't have and have to create, others of which I lost and need to find. Others, you know, it's 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 odd. Um, I think basically you're sending a letter to the world, you know somehow with a play and you're, you're doing a lot of negotiations with the text of the play with the writer if he or she is living with the time you're doing the play in um, but I never feel or I don't often feel that I can think of a moment where I say yes I have this one task that I'm going to you know, give myself to, to, to bring this forth so many different Variables and so many of them are out of one's control, you know, right. at first at any rate, until mm-hmm. they start to kind of coagulate. Right. Um, David, can you? Um, well, I, I suppose I have a, I could, normally I have a starting point uh, which might be useful to communicate. Um, and it's, it would be, I suppose, the, I, I, I sort of feel my role is to create a, a world or a space in which everyone who's involved in the production who do far more specific and definable things like designing costumes or acting or lighting or doing makeup or whatever they're doing can make sense of themselves within that world. And, and obviously in something like Shakespeare, my decisions about that world are going to be more uh, important because Shakespeare's not prescriptive. And if, as at the moment, for example, I'm directing a pinter in London that's much more prescriptive from the writer's point of view, but I still feel that the same, the same thing applies for me, which is that I need to create what for me is, would be the world of this production. And uh, that, that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, it's definitely set in 1623 in Venice or something like that. It just means there's a, these are the sort... This is the aesthetically and morally and philosophically the, the area that we're going to explore... Uh, in, in this production. So, for example, in the Pinter at the moment, uh, we have explored the notion of the play in some ways being a, around uh, the idea of, of, of blood sacrifice and, and butchery. Now, that's not necessarily in the play, and I don't think anyone going to see it will necessarily go, ah, oh, what a marvellous production about blood sacrifice and butchery in Pinter. I don't think that... But it has helped everyone who's in it have a feeling of where we might be starting from, and sometimes you end up throwing it away and leaving it. And, and, but normally it, it tends to stay until the end. Right. Karen, do you want to? Uh, yes, I, I would say that uh, it's calibrating the um, kind of chaos of human nature with the formality of the art. So, you know, it's kind of bringing all that together uh, into the present moment. And um, with the chaos of the human nature, including the, the souls that are involved in the play and the, the actors, 
and then the audience that one prepares for, um, the content or that present moment, that that confrontation between uh, the company and the audience and the all the the rules of the art. I mean that that is really what the, the a world, indeed. Yeah. Um, this swirling sort of uh, all these thoughts that come together, but but really addressed to that moment. So so whether it's a, a Shakespeare or uh, a Flannery O'Connor uh, or or whatever it is, what the ones making up a piece or. Um, thinking about right now, I'm thinking about Love's Labor's Lost, um, and I'm thinking about how that play is important now. You know, and it's kind of surprising because it's a uh, one that is often put aside. But I'm working on why the repartee, why that now, and what are the roots of those words? You know, that are spoken. Uh, in, within that play, mm-hmm. why does it need to be heard now? So, right. Well, I want to. I'm going to definitely return to that question of why now. Um, but, Aaron, do you want to talk a bit about your central task as director, or if there is one? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I think uh, I, I usually start with a text. Um, not everybody does, but and I don't always. But usually, I start with a text, so you have the words. And in some ways, I think language is kind of an imperfect way of communicating. Uh, And I feel like, so the director's job is sort of to, I think, figure out what's underneath the words or, uh, and the context that those words, um, um, out of which those words emerge. And then you have to translate that into, the flesh and time and a specific space and into some kind of an event. Uh, right. Now, um, some of you may have been um, at the first of the four um, discussions here last week when Peter Brook was here talking with Michael Boyd and the scholar James Shapiro. And in that talk, Peter Brook talked about the need for what he called a guiding something, um, basically also what he also called a hunch, something that when you're directing now Shakespeare talking about in particular, um, he used as a sort of touchstone throughout the, the course of rehearsals. Um, can you talk about, Mark, um, either, I know that you're working on Twelfth Night Now or in a previous production, that sort of thing, and also can that, can that initial intuition or hunch about a play that you carry into the beginning of rehearsal, can that change and how? Um, it can change, but I think, you know, to, to specifically talk about Twelfth Night, uh, it's the third time I'm doing it, and uh, happily, happily embracing it. And I'm older, you know, so it's, it's completely different in many ways to read this text now. But the last time I did it, um, I was struggling with just that. What's the idea? What's the overriding idea? I know what I love about the play. I know a lot of about the dynamics of the scenes and why they work and what's going on, but I couldn't find a sort of metaphor for myself, you know. And Michael Jurgen had designed a very simple set uh, after a lot of talk, and, and Jess Goldstein, costume designer, and Michael and I were sort of in the penultimate meeting, you know, with the model. And, um, 
the, the set model, not some beautiful girl. <laughs> I think that the audience knows what that means with this model. They come to my production meeting. I know they do. I know. It's, you're so lucky. Um, but anyway, we were looking at this model, and it was very simple. There was a little mirror ball, and there was confetti, and I, I don't know quite how we had gotten to this, but we'd gotten to it in a way that didn't, wasn't co- coalescing for me yet. You know, was, everybody was happy with it, and, but I didn't know why we were all happy with it. <laughs> And Jess said, uh, well, it looks like some funny old... Uh, it looks like the party ended. And that was it. That was absolutely it, because it's, you know, it's a play very much about the end of youth, and it's a play that has characters in it that are living past their youth and thinking that they can still behave like children and drunkards and idiots and people who imagine that they're younger than they are, like Malvolio, or who have the rights of youth when they don't. Suddenly, the whole thing became about the end of some kind of party, some kind of revelry. And since the play is very much, you know, commemorates a, a night that ends the Christmas season, you know, that is the end of happiness and joy and getting back to, you know, that became the controlling metaphor for the production. And, and, and every scene, like a spoke in a wheel, went towards that. I don't think I ever explained it to the cast. I, I don't like to sort of give a big idea to the cast because right. they're actors. They're thinking in a different way. Um, and I don't want to limit them or reduce their possibilities by sort of giving them an overall picture, but it kept, I kept it in mind. Michael and Jess did, and it informed everything all the time. Right. I also had just seen a production by Michael Bogdanov at Stratford, Ontario, of Measure for Measure that began with all with the audience invited onto the stage to dance with these sort of marvelously loose and, you know, sort of sleazy-looking characters. They were Canadian actors, so you can imagine how far they got with that. <laughs> but still, it was sort of... They were also into it. It was a great deal of fun. And, and it did set a tone about the play. He had a very intellectual idea about what was going on in the play. And this idea of inviting the audience into the space to dance became a kind of also something that began to help me, because when they finally sat down and we got to, with music, be the food of love, something had happened between the actors and the audience that kind of we traded on right. for the rest of the night. Mm. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think the hunch is, <clears throat> is the same thing as, as the world. For yeah. me. It's the same thing. It's the, it's, and it, 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 it's a, it, hunch is a nice phrase for it. Um, but I think probably I'd go a little bit further than that in terms of, I, I have a, maybe a journey I have, a, I have in my head so actually, for both Lear and Winter's Tale, I had um, a journey from certainty to uncertainty, uh, and I had very specific visual metaphors for that floating around. Um, I, th- I, I can't do Shakespeare unless I have a be- the beginning of a metaphor right. floating around. I can't. It's like that's a metaphor. The, the end of the party. That's a metaphor. Uh, that's what I mean. It's, cause it, and it's visual. It, it gives you an idea as a director that, of things you might put in, even if you then turn them like music or, mm-hmm. or you know, an old disco system that's collapsed in the corner, whatever. It gives you, and you then say, well, that's, is that, that's an interesting idea. So I'm actually also going to do Twelfth Night. I'm stealing all of your ideas. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> well, you stole one, so I can steal. I did, yeah. uh, stealing, is, stealing is good, by the way. That's, I'm, it's very nice to see an honest uh, confession of stealing because everyone does it. Um, but no, actually, my... my um, my Twelfth Night is, is, is part of a trilogy which is entirely based around this hunch of a metaphor around shipwreck. 
um, and shipwreck going much further than what shipwreck just just in terms of obviously at the beginning of the play two characters are shipwrecked but much more than that who are the really shipwrecked characters are they all in a state of constant maroonedness and it's the same thing and it just it's just a place that means that if you keep, if you stick to it with a certain rigor without being fascist about it it will it will mean that it suffuses through everything and you will end up with something that's more specific right. and the actor particularly will respond i think very deeply to it even if as you say you don't hammer it into them, be shipwrecked, you know, feel marooned. It doesn't mean that, but it just... It, it, if they can feel... I think really good actors love that. They love the texture of, an, of, a, of a world that they can touch and feel. Right. Uh, which, what are the other two plays in the trilogy? That... Uh, Comedy of Errors and The Tempest. Yeah, great. Um, that's, I shouldn't be telling you this. That, you must all stay completely silent about that. And David, I, I just want to... Um, pick on you for a second because I've just watched a run-through of the King Lear, which was extraordinary, and this is a production that was devised some years ago, yes? Well, no, about uh, no, not that long ago, about a year and a half. year and a half ago. Um, I mean, well, it was rehearsed a year and a half ago. It was devised in the sense of it was thought about much right. about two and a half okay. years ago. Yeah. Um, did, the, did your hunch or thoughts about the, the, the controlling metaphor or whatever shift or change at all now that, now that you're... They didn't, it didn't shift in a way that... I mean, I wouldn't want to make it sound like it didn't change because the actors, for me, change things a lot. The way casting is a very, very... You think, you think one thing and then you get an actor who comes along and it's so wonderful that everything changes. And I think that's the biggest change for me. I'm, uh, I think actors are they're so fundamental right. to, 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 to the theatre. They are the reason, really, people come is to experience that moment with an actor. Um, and everything else, for me, is about carving space around... And that's what the metaphor is doing, is carving space... To, to make that actor f- be more present right. because everything is helping them be more present. Um, so, but it did, no, it did stay, broadly speaking, the same in terms of a, a, disin- a, a literal disintegration, uh, which you'll see if you're coming to see it, from a certain place into a place of, of terrible, well, everyone must presumably knows the play, of terrible uncertainty, right. um, and increasing isolation in every single way, from gods, from other people, from family, from your own rationality. So, right. yeah. Karen, when you did the uh, Henry VI plays, did, was there a... And it was for only ten actors. I mean, talk about conceiving or initial hunches for that. Did that have a strong initial? Yeah, when I, when I read it in... Well, gosh, it was a while ago. It, I, I just couldn't put it down. That's the thing. I mean, it's, a, in three, it's three plays... And uh, I had been asked to choose one of the last ten in the marathon to work on. And, and so there were, you know, these ten that were available, and one of them was Henry VI. And I, as I read through it, I just couldn't put it down. That, that's one thing. I, I was interested very much in the idea of the medieval community at the beginning that moved into a very modern space at the end. Um, I mean, there was a sense of community. That this is always happening, actually, um, uh, in Shakespeare's plays. The, 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 the betrayal of the other in, uh, for oneself, you know. So just casting off uh, the strangers or the, the community in order to serve oneself. So this is what was happening. And I, I loved the character of Henry VI himself. I thought he was sort of like a... He was misplaced <laughs> as king, and uh, like a character that 
uh, what, what, well, he was more of a uh, of an intellectual, you know, more of a student, more uh, was didn't want power. So how? And then I started to become very interested because when I start to work on a play and I get an impulse and I think, ah, I'm attracted to this play. I've got to do this. I can't put it down. I, there's something happening here. Then I find endorsements all around. Uh, for instance, just finding out about the Plantagenets, you know, and this family, and coming from a uh, from this flower called Plantagenista, you know, this little flower. All the it, everybody in the the play is related. Um, hence, you know, I thought, well, this is a play that we could do. We had to make cuts, obviously. It was going to be in two evenings, not in three, in two, and and so I had to find a way to break it down and find a trajectory through it that would start in a space where people were together and more committed and uh, someone like Talbot, you know, uh, mourns the absence of the, the community. And then to the point where Richard, or the future Richard, says, I am myself alone. Right. You know. Yeah, no, and, and did the, did the, the company, which... I'll admit, when I direct Shakespeare, often the company becomes its own metaphor, generating metaphor for the society, for the group, yeah. for the family. Having ten alone yeah. must have fed into that. Absolutely, notion. and we, we had workshops that I was working with, so, I mean, there was a huge history of um, two workshops we had and then went into rehearsal, right. so it was fabulous. Um, I'm going to shift the conversation just a little bit to, to focus on the language of Shakespeare. It's one of the great differences of directing Shakespeare is clearly that one has to confront and uh, to some degree anyway master uh, the technical demands of the language. Um, and I know that uh, Theatre for an Audience where Aaron is the Associate Artistic Director is very committed to ex- examining in a deep, deep way the language of the plays often in collaboration with uh, the great voice teacher um, Cecily Berry, who will be here actually on August 4th for the next panel that we're organizing. Um, can you talk about your approach to the Shakespeare's language and potentially specifically how mm, responsible do you feel to its technical demands and how strict are you? How much do you talk about it in rehearsal itself? Let's say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, all you have is the language. And, and so I do look at the structure and talk about the structure a lot. And I mean, I assume you're talking about the verse some, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but for, for me, and, uh, I, I, and I think Sis, Sis Barry would say, you know, there's, there's no one way to say these words. And um, I, I feel like there are clues in the structure of the language, uh, which, I mean, there's a, it's like gold in there. Um, but it isn't sort of prescriptive in that I don't stand, I don't, I don't conduct. Um, uh, Some do. I know, I know. <laughs> um, uh, and 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 theater for I mean the RSC works with this too. Uh, uh, but uh, she she has a really sort of physical way of uh, connecting the language. And Karns worked with this yeah. yeah. also. I don't know. Right. Um, but uh, she has really uh, physical ways of connecting the, the the language to the actor's body, and and believes that the um, that the 
this. You can't really understand the meaning of the words until you speak them. Right. Um, um, Mark, how, how have you worked? With, you've done a lot of Shakespeare. Yeah, language is is, uh, is the almost the only thing that I think about when I'm working. Once I finally get in the room, once the notion is conceived, the cast is in place. Um, I find the only answers come from that, for me personally. So when they're spoken, you know, they, by these specific actors, we're all talking about the power of the actor in the space, suddenly, you know, I'm on it big time. I, I, I do feel there are certain ways that Shakespeare can be spoken that makes more sense to me personally. It's not, I'm not... Manichaean about it. <laughs> it's just there's a certain thing, there are certain uh, rules that if I can follow myself and make actors comfortable with, I feel I'm hearing the verse best. And I'm, I'm hearing the verse cleanly and openly, and yet I want the verse to be grounded, or the prose or whatever, to be grounded in their whole body. Uh, I think one of the strange things about contemporary actors, despite all the training programs, I don't know if you feel this way, but so many actors just act from here up. And you can't do that in anything, really. And you don't do it in spite of yourself. But you absolutely can't do it in, 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 in Renaissance verse tragedy. Or any, you know, you can't. You can't, you, can't, you can't speak it unless you're feeling it. Somehow, every part of your body is supporting an idea that is then linguistically moving out of it, breathing and coming. I mean, really, honestly, from the toes to the center to out. And a lot of my work, I don't do classes and warm-ups and stuff, but I, a lot of it is about just allowing yourself to use your whole body um, to, to experience the verse that way. It's not, right. it's not a kind of ooga-booga thing. It's, it's just like, hey, look, you've got this great an- instrument. You've got <laughs> two feet, two legs knees that bend, a butt, what have you, breathe through it all. Let it all happen. Let it come out of that. And then look what happens when another actor is with you doing that. It's extraordinary what can happen. But it it has to be that that people are always hearing each other and hearing a way of speaking, particularly iambic pentameter, that I think is is essential to getting it it across easily. That's a big difference in, in rehearsing Shakespeare as opposed to more contemporary dramatists, right? You are in rehearsal talking about the verse, yes? All the time. Right, all the time. All the time. I mean, I, I, I don't want to take up more time, but there's a, I'm in rehearsal now for Terence McNally's Lips Together, Teeth Apart. We opened tomorrow night in Westport, and Terence um, came to the, the last run-through in the room here in New York the other day, and we were having real, really wrestling with a lot of problems with the language. Nothing else, just the language. And he said at one point, he said, you're, 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 um, you're getting too dramatic with the language. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're emphasizing things that you would emphasize in another writer. You have to find McNally speak. And he said, listen to the way I'm talking to you. Well, that was it. You know, I, I <laughs> totally understood it. So these people talking about miscarriages, uh, mistrust, uh, betrayal, uh, cancer, terminal illness, had to talk about it in a way that didn't allow any of it to become heightened. And Hmm. suddenly the play was unlocked, and it was unlocked in its language. I'm not sure there is such a big difference, as you you say. There may not be at all. Um, I mean, there's certainly no difference between Pinter and Shakespeare. 
Uh, I mean, Pinter's maybe an unusual modern playwright. You mean I, that you talk about the rhythms of my it all God, the time? My yeah. God, yes. I mean, it's, for me, it's really important with his stuff. And I, mean, I think one of the roots of this is that, of, for many good reasons, acting has become more, much more psychological. So, I mean, you know, 100 years ago, no one would have been talking about intentions, what am I meaning when I... Mm -hmm. And for, for good reason, that, has, that language has crept in, but it's also because we're a massively psychologised society now. When you've got a language yeah. that, in Shakespeare's terms, has got psychology, but it, it does feel... Uh, as Aaron's saying, it's like the, the, the language gives you the psychology when you speak it. Um, and to get an actor to trust that and explore what, that way around is perhaps a more and more unusual. Um, Greg Hicks, who plays Leah, does do it that way around. He, he, he's very happy to... And he's very much a physical guy as well. And he very much does go into the language and sees what it does to him, draws conclusions and, and, and explores. But a lot of actors now prefer to go, well, what am I doing? Who am I? Sometimes they almost want to know who they are before they say anything. Right. And that's obviously very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because the, the glib answer to that is you are the words that you say. That's what you are. Right. And you're nothing else. How can you decide anything? And, and, and Pinter would, would literally say that when I worked with him when he was alive. What you, when, if an actor would ever say, well, who, who is he? What's he like? He would say, he's bloody well what I wrote on the page. And that's, literally, and that's what he would say. And, that's what, and his, his, right. his, his serious intention was to say, that's, just look at that. And, and if, as an actor, honestly respond in the room with the other bodies in the room saying right. these words and something will happen. Yeah. And, and it's very exciting, but it, it isn't perhaps the way that we're going with the orthodoxy at the moment. Yeah. Going the, with the orthodoxy at the moment, you mean... What do you the, mean more psycholo the more psychological approach where you, would build, you build a character, you decide when you were born and what street you lived in and what happened to your mother and your father. Yeah. And, and that, but actually, there's some, I mean, I'm, I don't, I, I'm very happy to, to, to do some of that work mm -hmm. if I feel... It's, but but it's, it's, it's very, very important that the main discoveries happen live. Right. It's, it's fluid, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's alive and it's continuing. And also another part I think about this, what I'm hearing here is um, part of the language is a silence. And the listening, I mean, it's something that happens a lot in music. We have sound and silence, which is all a part of the music. And in the text, uh, in a play, the language, I mean, I think Lear is sculpted out of silence. It's like this huge thing that, you know, rises up and what, what are the words that rise up but really it's these, these silences that we try to find and, um, and so listening to the sense of humor of each character or each, each writer, for instance I think of Lear, you know, who uh, in, the, in that, I can't wait, I'm seeing it tomorrow so I can't, <laughs> can't wait <laughs> bringing my godson uh, but uh, when, he's, when she says, so young, my lord, and true, and then he says, the truth then be your dower. You know, this amazing moment where you can just hear the father, because I, I think of the, the, the patriarch, you know, which is something to be protected, not judged, and yet, because he's inside of that, right, but he's seen his youngest daughter, his favorite, who says, so young, my lord, and true, and he says, the truth, and take that and eat it, you know, eat it. And it's so exciting when the word, and this is what Sis is talking about always with, with us, you know, in these workshops that she's done and we've been so privileged to be a part of, is um, the visceral, the necessity of speaking. Why did you say that in that moment? Why are you full of contradictions? You know, which is what Shakespeare, uh, you know, he gets 
more of the psychic cartography of our landscape than, well, than many, although I agree. There are others, too, like Flannery O'Connor, like Pinter, like so many, you know. Um, Aaron, can you talk about the sense of how much do you decide about character before the beginning of rehearsal? I mean, I think it's it's a very difficult thing to do, and it's a very difficult thing to talk about, and I think it's not... I think audiences wonder about what the process is. Do you walk in with an idea about a character and then say, okay, that's it, everybody, let's start illustrating that? And I know that the answer is you don't do that, but um, the difficulty and what is the process like of discovery? Because it's quite difficult, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, for me, I mean, going back to your question about a hunch, for, for me, it, it, it's it's often about character, that that feeling that is sort of that that essential intuition about uh, that it's, it tells me, oh, I, I can do that play because there aren't the, 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 there are a lot of Shakespeare's plays that I can't do. I, I feel because I don't about, have that. Can you talk about one of the ones that you have? Then have, have you felt about Othello or? Yeah, Macbeth? yeah. Um, uh, I mean. Uh, so for uh, for Othello, for me, I I I felt um, I had an understanding of his madness. Um, uh, I, I felt like I understood what was happening to him, and um, in that, and 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 I think the name jealous, or the the word jealousy, is sort of um, not quite right. Uh, but I think. You know, when the person that you love or trust the most in the world, when you when they betray you, I, I think the world becomes un- unknowable to you, and I think that's what happens to Othello. And I and I sort of understood that, and I understood um, Desdemona in, in in that production. I felt that she, uh, I feel like she's, um, uh, I feel like she chooses to. Uh, fight to the death for this relationship. I, I, and she kind of has no choice. But, I, you know, sometimes she's thought of as sort of a fool, like a naive little girl. And I... And I, I so I'll have thoughts about character like that that, um, that I do... that are really important to me and that I, 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 I wouldn't... You know, I would need to talk to an actor about those ideas, those sort of essential ideas, before going into rehearsal or before we agree to work together. Um, but, then, but then it's all about the language and, and you, just, you, you, you just are looking at what they're saying and you're finding new things. And, and I think it's never happened to me where, where the things you find are in contradiction to what your initial instinct is. I don't know what I would do in that situation. That would be unfortunate. <laughs> right. Mark, have you ever had the experience of, of going into a rehearsal with an initial hunch or notion about a play and thought, oops, I maybe not? I haven't, actually, no. I'm glad to say I may. <laughs> I mean, I have on some contemporary work. And um, it, it, interestingly enough, what David was saying about, you know, trust the words, trust the words, and we're all talking about the language of Shakespeare, a dead, a dead playwright, but every playwright I've worked with, you know, Terence, Arthur Miller, Edward Albee, Pete Gurney, Tony Kushner, I mean, whenever push has come to shove and you've gotten to a funny place, 
they just turn to you as if you're an idiot and say, Mark, Mark, just trust the words. They're right there on the page. You can, can't you hear that? You know, and the actors are all staring at them, and I'm staring at them, but that, that's the key that somehow unlocks it. Right. Well, it helps if it's Shakespeare's words. It does, indeed. To, to trust. Um, I think there's a practical thing as well. I think <clears throat> when you've got a shortish rehearsal period, one of the roles of a director is to yeah. have some kind of clarity about... Because otherwise, you haven't really got time to suddenly go, oh, actually, I was wrong, when you've only got four <laughs> or five, six weeks. Um, it, it, that isn't very helpful. So you, you can, it can develop and, cha- and move in, and flower in a different, possibly a different way. But if you were to... But you, need a, you would literally need, it for me, a longer time to be able to go... And, and I know directors who do do this, but, right. it's a, but they, they do have much longer to be able to go, no, actually, that's not interesting, as interesting as I thought it was, and I'd rather go completely... Because fundamentally, you'd be talking about... For me, you'd be talking about redesign... You'd be talking about, you know, changing of music. Otherwise, I don't quite know what what the. You know, so, otherwise, and, you're going to end up with a mishmash, which is, and that's when you've. That's when I think you probably failed as a director. If, if we were to talk about failure, it would be where, where you've you've done sort of nothing. You've managed because you. So it's more more interesting to continue and to fail gloriously, at something that you thought was interesting, for me. Right. Uh, and to do to, than to sort of slightly row back and end up with a bit of a bland thing that isn't neither one thing nor the other. I think it's a. There were just really practical considerations about, right. you know, I mean, for example, one of the interesting things about, uh, certainly in England, I'm sure it's true here, is that design sort of has to be finalised yeah. before a rehearsal begins right. for practical reasons. Now, that means that the notion of an organic rehearsal process is a little bit of a lie because the design is not organic. Right. Um, uh, it can't be. So, it can be so a little bit organic. You can change some costumes can be organic but, um, to an extent, but, but sort of the big structural stuff can't be. And so, right. therefore, you... So I think, and at the RSC, one of the things that we've explored is having longer rehearsal process to try to be more truthful about organic rehearsal right. processes. Because otherwise, it's a bit of a con. It sounds good, right? But like organic yogurt, so it isn't really organic. It reminds me of saying it's, it's, it feels, it sort of sounds like it's, but it's not really. It's actually, it just sounds good, and, and you will convince yourselves you're. How much rehearsal do you do you get at the RSC? Well, it, it's very, very different in different processes. What they've started to do, which I think is wonderful, is to do much longer rehearsal processes, but to, but to make two plays at the same time. So what that means is that you get what sounds an astronomic amount of time to me, which is like 12 weeks, 13 weeks, but actually you're doing two plays. But, but nonetheless, it, the director gets time off, which is something that I used to never experience. I, I don't know, do you get, is it normally like four or five weeks in a mad rush here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So normally, what you normally, in England too, it's four or five weeks in a mad rush. Very, very intense. Yeah. All day. Um, and, uh, and you are working in minute passages. This is something, uh, uh, excuse me if everyone's very knowledgeable about it, but some people don't know, is that you work in very, very small detail on tiny sections, and you sort of don't, and that's how actors need to work. They need to work in detail. And then you haven't really got time to do, it more, to do that process more than once. Or, and then you, uh, but, so what the RSC now tries to do, which I think is wonderful, is to try and double that, but, do double, but of course, for financial reasons, they need to get, that's impossible, so you double the number of plays you're doing. Right, you're you still... need to get days off as a director, unless you're doing both, in which case you're mad. Which and I... you, but, you're, do you, <laughs> but your designs are still finalised before day one. Yes. Their designs, in that case, are pretty close still, because, of course, they're big, they're big pieces of theatre. Right. But they're a little bit more flexibility, but not much, yeah. And uh, I want to talk about what the rehearsal room is like. Karen, can you talk about when you're directing Shakespeare, it, say four or five weeks, how much time do you spend just sitting around a table talking about the play, and when do you, how quickly, or is, is there a rule for you, when do you start rehearsing, uh, staging? Uh, I, yeah, I, I actually start at the table, and the table is there 
for actually for a week, I would say. But I start to do influenced by cis actually in many ways uh, uh, exercises that start right from the table and go out, so that you know it becomes visceral right away. Um, because I think if we just intellectual just sit around and talk, and then I'm a little afraid of some of the actors that want to talk too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> there's that, and then we know that we have to you know, move the thing along. Um, but there's nothing quite like trying it and trying, speaking it and then trying an exercise that moves away from the table, like takes the whole room. For instance, she has an exercise uh, for a soliloquy. That I know you know this. Um, that, uh, you, you know, you take the... And, and David, I'm sure you know this. You, the, the landscape of the room becomes your brain. You know, the, 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 the landscape of the head of the of that person delivering a monologue or the soliloquy or whatever. And you go to different places in the room when you feel that you need to shift. So uh, just in the moment, in the moment that the actor is doing it, it's just very improvisational, but with the text. And I found that very, it opens things up. First of all, it also uh, uh, gets the cosmos of the thought inside the moment of the text. It helps not just to speak about that moment in time or that action, but also acknowledging the resonance of a larger world. So anyway, I would say about a week. A week. But, but I also, the, it never stops the investigation because right. we go back to it, but then we also, from the table, start doing something physical right away. Aaron, what is... I don't know. I don't have, like, a rule... I don't know. Uh, I I like I like the whole company talking about the text. Um, I find it it's useful and it brings everyone into the same world. And I, I not from a not from an acting point of view. I, I used to work for a director named Jerry Gutierrez, and um, and he he quit directing and went to law school for a little while. And um, and when after he came back to directing quitting law school, he, um, he, he, he would say to, to the actors, okay, look at this as if it's like a transcript script, like a legal transcript, and you have to sort of, you're the jury, and you have to sort of investigate what has happened or what's going on here. And I, I feel like it's, it's useful for the, for, for the whole team to, to look at the play sort of from an outside point of view. Um, but sometimes it's, it's sometimes you feel like oh we're just talking a lot and that's annoying and right. boring uh, and then you just have to do something else. As something particular, at least that I felt I've experienced while working on Shakespeare, both reading it and directing it and watching it, um, is the sense that it's inevitable that the plays exceed me; they are larger than I am, and that I'm in the presence of something that I don't fully get. Um, and I try not to feel bad about that, but that, that is that they are huge and mysterious structures, creatures. How does that, I mean, if you feel that about them or if you found yourself feeling that, how, does, how do you deal with that? Is, that? is that paralyzing for you? How do you, uh, you know, as you create these hunches, leave room for the vastness? I mean, something like King Lear. It's a big old play. Yes. Um, no, I, I really understand what you what you mean by that, um, and I think in a way that's why it, it is good to, to to always be with the language because then you're not. Uh, that's why I have a little bit of a problem when when actors try and solve 
everything outside of the language because it's a little it's a little bit presumptuous actually to suggest that they could actually imagine what let's say and, and this is not picking on anyone in my cast let's say um, I don't know Goneril or Edmund is really thinking or ex- has experienced or it's it it might be better it's it's a proposition that it might be better to leave that uncertainty within the space or at least some of that uncertainty within the space so what I'm literally saying is that it might actually be better for the actor not fully to know or to think that they know mm-hmm. every single detailed piece of their backstory and experience. Um, so from an actor's point of view, I, I think it takes as much pressure, it, because then they can exist in the... Un- the only thing that they're, what they're good at, is the, and why we love them, is that actors exist in the terrifying uncertainty of the present moment, exactly. which is unknowable and wonderful, and strange, magical things happen with really good actors when, when, that, when that happens. And I think uh, I'm a little bit... You know, I, I, my process, I think I really got, my process is changing quite a lot in this respect, that I'm... I'm, a li- I'm increasingly a bit suspicious of the talking about stuff, except for the initial few days of just trying to get everyone to feel osmotically what this, this hunch world is. That's really important. And that's not really, they're not, that's not really about being an actor. That's about right. being, a, being a collaborator, isn't it? It's about right. being a, a person who's going to be part of this thing. They need to feel, be helpful if emotionally they could feel very vaguely where we might be going. Right. Um, but it's not really about being an actor. That's, you know, as a study in a particular role. Mark, can you talk about just leaving room for the mystery? Or yeah, the... I think it's essential. I think it's essential. I, you know, I, I was an actor for a long time, and before that I was a musician. So in terms of, you know, tr- being trained to listen, um, I, I mean, I was a string musician where you, you do have to listen to create the correct intonation, unlike a pianist. Um, uh, I find that the way the play doesn't exceed me is to simply listen to it when it starts to, you know, personally, uh, an actor opens her mouth and something begins to happen. I don't always understand what's happening, but something is being created often that I didn't plan on, think about, read in the text myself, I didn't hear suddenly she unlocks something, her soul is right there, and, you know, um, and I find whenever I get into a sort of bind with a, with a moment in a, in a rehearsal, to just sit back and, 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 and listen, listen to the verse, listen to what they're saying. Sometimes I close my eyes or turn my back on them, just to listen, right. and, and not be, have my eyes tangled by what I'm, by what I'm watching. I think, too, that, you know, there's a, it's important to get them to listen to each other and to hear the music that they're sharing in a Shakespeare play because there's a lot of it. Right. It's, a, it's a small vocabulary, isn't it? It's an oddly small vocabulary. Here's the greatest linguist in the English language, probably, and yet there's this finite number of words, many of which he created himself, that, that everyone shares in the landscape. And it might be some, 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 some messenger with a, a ten, you know, a ten lines of iambic pentameter who's sharing five different things with the leading lady, Lear, you know. Right. I also have to say, just listening to David talk about the, the rehearsals at, at the RSC, when I was a young actor at the Guthrie Theatre and there was a repertory company, it was, it was so divine, it was bliss. And my first experience there was rehearsing Love's Labor's Lost and King Lear simultaneously. They opened one night and then the next night. So the entire company, really, um, except for the Lear, I think, um, the man playing Lear, shared these two plays. And, you know, Goneril was Rosalind, and I was Dumaine in Love's Labors, and then Edgar in Lear. And 
it was just magic being able, magic is a silly word for it, but to, to, to be able to have this transformative thing going on each day, morning, Love's Labors, evening, King Lear, then voice work and exercise in the morning, then King Lear, then Love's Labors. And somehow, though the plays seemed to have nothing to do with each other, were completely different in terms of their conceptions, the company had this vibrating core that was you know, highly unusual. Um, great. I, I asked, um, well, I sent an email around. I don't know if people <laughs> read it or not. Um, to ask you guys to think of, to help the audience sort of watch the next piece of Shakespeare through a, a little bit through a director's eyes. If there was a piece of directing that you can recall from either your own production or someone else's, where you thought, well, that's a good piece of directing. That is something, that's a good choice that maybe a, a, a layperson wouldn't know was a directorial moment, not a piece of design, not a, you know, a big old thing, but something that you saw in a, in a production. Did anyone think of anything? And I can, th- go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just thought of, I, I didn't read your email, sorry. But Good. I um, <laughs> You'll go back and read it. I was, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, no, there is a, there's a little scene in Winter's, not tonight's play, uh, in Winter's Tale, um, that, uh, towards the end, which I'm very proud of. And it's three, it's, what is it, four servants. It's not normally done with servants. It's a tiny little scene. Normally, I think, not the most interesting scene. And lots of story is dealt with. Shakespeare's knocked it off. He's gone, you know. And I, I'm very, and for some reason, I'm really happy with that scene. I remember the process of that scene being really successful and joyous. Um, uh, and it's the scene that, you're absolutely right, people wouldn't necessarily... And what, what's the quality that you think that... You well, the, I, I think what it is is... It, because I made a little, an early decision, a hunch, that the, the servant life of the play was important, um, it sort of bore fruition at the end of this, at the end of the thing. Very simple. And the four actors were lovely and gorgeous, and we did wonderful, funny improvisations of them, because there's a big gap in Winter's Tale, 16 years, isn't there? So we did a wonderful thing of doing 16 years in one morning of their life. Because, I mean, very boring being a servant, isn't it? Right. So with no one to serve. Uh, just waiting for someone to come back so they could do a bit of serving, you know, drink stirring coffee and or whatever. And it was, I remember it was very, very funny in the morning. But, but that is in that work, which is not normally what I do, to be honest, but I did it. And it, that work really is it, borne out in this scene, even though the audience, you wouldn't really, but it's borne out in the way in which they play together as a bunch. Right. Um, and then none of them are the lead parts, you know, it's all just four guys. And, and, and so that's a good little example. Where, right, and provides a texture for the whole thing. But. Yeah, it's actually, actually, I realise now, a phenomenally important scene. I mean, it's the penultimate scene of the play. Four characters that basically, well, no, none of them have spoken before, ever, in the play. And it's long. It's, it's a long, scene. it's not short. It's a, it's a good seven or eight minutes, I would think, maybe more. Anyone else? Well, when I played Hamlet a thousand uh-huh. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what a line. Um, it was at the Globe, and Jack O'Brien directed it. And um, Byron Jennings played Horatio. And, um, and uh, we were in San Diego, and during the run of this production, uh, the Russian film of Hamlet um, uh, suddenly was showing for one day in an art house there. And it was such a revelation. You know, so, to the two of us being so deeply, deeply into this inside our own production, to suddenly see all of these answers handled not only by a director whose first language wasn't wasn't English, but who had clearly a million other agendas that 
unlocked so much in the play. And there was insight after insight after insight. I mean, many of which I've stolen in my own productions of Hamlet that I finally directed. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's a great scene uh, uh, early on in the play. It's his first soliloquy, Oh, that this two-two solid flesh. And he wanders through Elsinore. I'm sure some of you have seen it. Um, and Elsinore is kind of this UN. All of these v various European, you know, ambassadors are meeting there, and you hear various languages. This is at least how I remember the scene. And he, I don't believe, is speaking. It's a voiceover, like in the Olivier film, as in the Olivier film. But you suddenly have Hamlet moving through this entire world, thinking in a way that no one else on the continent, on the planet, is thinking. At least that's how it spoke to me. Right. Um, um, I'm sorry. Sorry, and, and that suddenly going back on stage that night, being alone on stage mm -hmm. doing the soliloquy, it just unlocked something for me. Mm -hmm. I thought it was one of the most brilliant directorial strokes I'd ever seen anywhere. I don't well, think you could do it on a stage, really. Um, I'm being waved off. I think we have to get, we've got to finish up. But I did want to leave with one thing, because I, I did get to watch this run-through today of The King Lear, and maybe some of you are going to be seeing it tonight. But I would say, watch Greg Hicks, who's doing The Lear, live inside of the contradictions and uncertainty of the character. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that this is a, a job that David has helped do. Uh, because it's a very a big lead part like that in a Shakespeare play. is very liable. To, the, the actors are very liable to be pulled one way or the other, either to sentimentalize or to make him a baddie or a goodie. And the way that the, the performance for me lives in neither of those worlds and both of those worlds is a real achievement, both clearly of Greg Hicks, but I think of David's as well. So I hope you've enjoyed the evening. Thanks very much for coming. Thank the four panelists. We'll see you later. Thank you.